Amen. Good morning, Mission, and welcome. Uh, I am excited to be here with you today. I hope you're excited as well to be here and hear from the Lord this morning. My name is Pastor Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission Church. Uh, Normally, Pastor Eric takes care of the preaching and teaching here at Mission, but here we are at a difficult passage again, and here I am. I'm I'm just kidding. I say that every time. I think it's just because they're all difficult for me, but I... As, as Brian just prayed, and I didn't tell him to say this, we firmly believe in God's sovereignty here at Mission Church and that he places everything in its divine time at the right time in the right place and all of those things. And I, I could not believe that any more after this week and after what the study that I've done, the, the brokenness I have felt. I have been deeply convicted over this passage this week. I've been deeply conflicted over this passage this week. What do I say? What do I not say? How do I preach this message when I myself need so much repentance in this area and yet God has me here? So before I begin preaching, um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 15 as we just read. I want to pray one more time just for all of us, but really for myself to protect my heart and and to protect my my lips from saying uh, things that I shouldn't or that God doesn't want me to say. Um, as you can tell, I'm a little anxious this morning. Um, th- this topic is, it, it's a big issue this morning. And I, I very, again, firmly believe that God has sovereignly chosen this time for this message for this church. So just pray with me one more time. Father, we come to you this morning. I come to you this morning unworthy to even pray to you, much less preach your words. I am just a man, I am a sinner, and yet I know by the power of your Spirit that you can speak through me and to all of the hearers this morning. I pray as you do that you would protect me, protect my heart, protect my lips. May I only say the words that you want me to say, and may the the people in this room hear your words and not my words. I pray that you would prepare everyone in here, including my own, prepare all of our hearts, prepare all of our minds, prepare our ears to hear what you would have us to hear and to go from this place different and changed and ready to live out your gospel in a world that so desperately needs it. We love you. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right. There is a lot to get to this morning, and I promise I'm not going to try to preach all day, but we definitely need to jump right in. So first, as we heard Brian read this passage, you may have been like me when you heard what Jesus said to this woman and been like, wait, what did he say? Every time I read this passage, I've read it a bunch of times, and I've definitely read it a bunch of times this week, and every time I read it, it seems out of character. It seems that Jesus is saying something that Jesus wouldn't say, and we almost want to take it out of Scripture, and yet he is saying something so profound here this morning that I cannot be happier that it is in Scripture this morning, even as it has caused much tension in my life this week. But we are talking about the same guy that a chapter from now is going to call one of his disciples the devil right to his face. So it's not as if Jesus minces words very often. He says what he means. He means what he says. And every time there is something going on besides just what he is saying. 
It is not just the words that are coming up, but what do those words mean? What do those words point to? What do those words say about him and his character? So first, we need to take a direct look at the context of this passage. There is a reason why this particular section of Scripture follows directly after what we learned about last week with the traditions being elevated too high above God's Word. If you did not hear that sermon, I recommend that you go listen to it on our website. It was fantastic. But Jesus challenges the religious elite in the section just before this and challenges them and reprimands them for elevating their traditions and the things they have added to God's word that aren't necessarily there above the actual words of God. He challenges them, and you can, you can read about that, but what does it mean to flip tradition entirely on its head? He spoke about it last week. This week, he's taking his disciples out to show them in real time, okay, what does this look like when you flip tradition on its head? What does it look like when you actively do things and live life that are going to go completely against the traditions you hear about. And that is what he's doing here. You see, we see Jesus leave the company of the religious, the Pharisees, the Jews, all of those, and then he goes to Tyre and Sidon. I don't really know exactly where that is. There is a map in my Bible. It's somewhere, but it, it's a Gentile territory. That is the main focus here. It is a Gentile territory. He is Jesus has been ministering. He has been leaving his mark many, many places. He has almost exclusively been ministering to Jewish people, though. Jewish people in Jewish context, which makes sense because he is a Jewish person in a Jewish context. So it would only make sense that he would speak to Jewish people in those contexts. But he's been saying some really un-Jewish things. It's not a word, but pastors are allowed to make up words. He's been saying some very non-Jewish things. And it has made him quite unpopular. You can look three chapters before this in Matthew 12. They're already trying to kill him. They're trying to come up with a way. It says that, that they were plotting to destroy him. So he's already made a mark. But just three chapters later, he basically calls those same people hypocrites for living the life that they live, for elevating their traditions, and for doing the things that they are doing. And he does it not only to their face, but publicly for everyone to see. So this is where we are in the story. The Jews already want to kill him, and Jesus takes gasoline to put out a fire. And it seems very un-Jesus-like at first, again, until we look at the deeper context. So he and his disciples go away, is what it says. He went away from there to a region that is Gentile. I'm not saying there's no Jewish people there, but it is very much a Gentile territory. Now his disciples probably normally would not have really wanted to travel to Gentile country because Jews and Gentiles don't get along. But with what Jesus is doing, they're probably like, yeah, let's just go wherever. I, let, let's just get out of here and go wherever you say, Jesus, because I don't feel safe. So they follow him to this place, and he goes to an exclusively Gentile territory, and lo and behold, he runs into a Gentile. Surprise, surprise. However, what is surprising is this Gentile recognizes Jesus immediately. She knows exactly who he is. He has made a name for himself so much so that a Canaanite woman, now Jews and Gentiles don't get along. Canaanites and Jews really don't get along. If you read your Old Testament, the Jewish people were promised a land. What land was that? It was Canaan. How did they get that land? They killed a bunch of Canaanites. They don't get along. They don't like each other. And yet a Canaanite woman comes up to Jesus and is asking him in verse 22 to heal her demon-oppressed daughter. 
Now we know Jesus can do this. In Matthew 8, we've seen him heal a person without even seeing them. A centurion comes up to him. By the way, he would have also been a Gentile. Comes up to him. My servant is sick. Can you heal him? Jesus says, sure, great. I have not seen. Let me read this exactly. It says, nowhere in Israel have I seen such faith. Your servant is healed. And instantly his servant was healed. Jesus never even saw the guy. Or at least at that point, he never had seen him. So he commends a Gentile for his faith and heals him. So we know he can do this. So why doesn't he just do it here? What does he do instead? At first, he does nothing. He ignores her. It says he says nothing to her. He does not respond. Then she, must, she persists, and the disciples tell Jesus, hey, just, just get rid of this lady. Like, she's annoying us. She's annoying you. Let's just get rid of her. We see that in verse 23. After that comment, he finally gives her an answer and says, I have only been sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Have you not heard the traditions, woman? I am for the Jews. I am a Jewish person for the Jews. Have you not heard this, basically, is what he is saying. And it first seems counterintuitive to post-resurrection Christians like us, but consider the timing. The Jews were, there is no doubt about it, read Scripture, the chosen people of God. They were chosen by him to be his people. Jesus was sovereignly chosen from the beginning to be sent to those people. Jesus could not have been an Australian man, a Korean man. He could not have been a Japanese man. He could not have been anything but Jewish. There are many prophecies that tell who the Messiah is going to be. And one of the main ones is that he is coming from a specific lineage, a specific tribe, and all of that says he's Jewish. He had to be Jewish. So, of course, he is going to take his message to the Jewish people first. And then his apostles are going to take it to the corners of the earth and to all the other peoples of the earth. We see that as, as he sends them out on the Great Commission to all peoples everywhere to bring to fruition the covenant I made with Abraham forever ago, years, hundreds of years, that all nations will be blessed by the bloodline of Abraham. Traditions say I'm sent to the Jews because that's what the Jews wanted to hear. But what does God's word say? And from the beginning, we can see that God's word has said he promises all nations to be blessed by him, not just the Israelites. So what does this mean for non-Jews, which is welcome, all of us in this room, as far as I know anyway. So what does this mean? The woman persists. And Jesus says one of the oddest things he says in all of Scripture. Again, I've read it hundreds of times this week. And every time I'm like, maybe he meant something else. Every time. And, I'm, and I've studied it enough now that I, you're getting ready to hear all of the study that I've done. And it's still kind of like, did, did he? It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Now, I, I know some of the women in this room. I've known them for years. And I know... Some of them right now, I will not name names, are thinking, I wish somebody would call me a dog up in here. Something's about to happen if somebody calls. I don't care what kind of context you got going on. You call me a dog. Again, I'm not going to name names, but I know them. And I know that, that, I know that it would not go well in other contexts. But what is Jesus really trying to say? Look how she responds in verse 27. She doesn't say, oh, no, he didn't. 
She doesn't say that. She says, yes, I'm a dog. I get that, Jesus. Yes, Lord, I'm a dog. But even the dogs get to eat crumbs that fall from the master's table. So what is Jesus saying and why does this woman respond so well? Okay, I don't want to get too heady here, but we kind of have to. In, in the original language, there are two words for dogs. One, the Jews usually, or the, yes, the Jews usually use for Gentiles was the, dog, the dogs that are running around the streets. They're mangy, they're strays, they're scavengers, they're just eating whatever they can, tipping over your garbage cans at night, barking, keeping you awake, those dogs. The ones no one likes. They are absolutely worthless. That is the one word. The word Jesus uses here was a word for a dog in the sense of a beloved pet. A dog that was allowed in with people, that was taken care of, that was fed, that is allowed inside and around the master's table. Now this is a distinction that this woman clearly recognized, or she would not have responded the way that she did. Jesus is still teaching here. He has his disciples with him. He is teaching his disciples something, as well as the woman. But he is teaching his disciples something. They, remember, have just asked Jesus, hey, get rid of her. She's annoying. And then Jesus steps in. He was kind of ignoring her until they said that. And then he was like, teaching moment. This is what's going down instead. But the, the disciples don't understand it. Get rid of her. She's a Gentile dog. Who cares? So as after this comment, Jesus steps in. She clearly recognizes that Jesus used a different connotation of the word because if she didn't recognize that, she would not have said, but even dogs get to eat around the master's table because the other connotation of the word dogs are not allowed around a master's table at all. They are strays. They are worthless. They are not able to eat the crumbs from a master's table. So she recognizes this. Now to some of you, probably those same women I was talking about earlier in here, that does not take away from the fact that Jesus called her a dog. And it isn't supposed to. That's what we have to get today. One of the things we have to get today. It's not supposed to take the sting away from Jesus still calling this woman a dog. And we'll get to that in just a second. Again, he's not one to mince words. He calls somebody the devil. One chapter. Stay tuned. He is, however, saying, if you read between the lines here, but woman, traditionally speaking, what would the Jews say here? Remember what we just read about in the section before. Traditionally speaking, you are not even worthy to ask me to heal your daughter. I am a Jewish man and you are a not Jewish woman. You are not worthy to even ask me. And he's basically asking her without asking her, but what does God's word say? Tradition says this and says you are not worthy to ask me this question. What does God's word say about this? He tests her resolve. He tests her faith, which he calls great in just a few verses here. The only two times Jesus has specifically commended someone for their great faith at this point in his ministry are both Gentiles. The centurion we just talked about a minute ago and this woman. That is not by accident. Jesus didn't just accidentally only commend two Gentiles first before the, even the disciples heard that their faith was great. That is not by accident. But then he says, but you, even you, a Gentile dog, but you, because of your faith, can be invited, be seated at my table. See, Jesus tests her faith, and he calls it great. He's giving her the opportunity, and just as importantly, 
He is giving the disciples the opportunity to see that it is faith, not ethnicity, not race, not moral standing, not worthiness. Faith is what brings us to the table. Faith is what delineates a dog of any kind from a children, or from children, sorry, from a child of God. It is faith that makes that distinction. And because of her great faith, he welcomes her, a lowly dog, in as if she is part of the family. And then he heals her daughter. She's healed instantly, just like we said he could do anyway. And scripture moves on to say that he heals many. So he heals a bunch more people as they bring them to him. And then just a few verses later, we didn't read it just because it was too, too long and we have just preached it a few weeks ago. But we see another feeding miracle of the 4,000 this time. And I'm not going to re-preach that message. Again, you can go back and listen to it on our website. It was great. Go listen to it. I highly recommend it. But there is a reason why it's doubled up here. Because at first you're like, we just, didn't we just hear this trick? He fed those people. Is he feeding these people? It's the exact same story. I mean, there's numbers changed and things like that. But it's the same story except... This time, he is doing it with Gentiles. He is teaching an object lesson. Hey, remember that thing I did for the Jews? Guess who else gets it? The Gentiles. You're on equal footing. You are both the same. And he is saying it. He's say, saying, you see these dogs? Traditionally speaking, they are dogs. You see them? Faith, not ethnicity, not race, not worthiness, not merit, but faith puts them on equal footing. They are you and you are are them. A quote I read this week, I wish I could tell you who it was by, but I didn't write it down. It says, we are dogs, not because we are Gentiles, but because we are sinners. Yet in Christ, the master himself feeds us from his hands. In Christ, we receive blessing and mercy from the master's table. In Christ, we find help and hope. In Christ, we are no longer called dogs, but sons and daughters. Praise Jesus that this is true. Because one, we are Gentiles. But mo more importantly, we are sinners. We are not worthy to ask Jesus anything. Just as this woman was traditionally not worthy. We are not worthy to come to him. And yet, he is treating Gentiles here in this story and us to this day equal to Jews. God's chosen people. God's sheep, as he calls them just a, a verse before. He is treating them as if they matter as much as the Jewish people, giving them the same miracles, the same lessons, and the same opportunity to believe in him as the Messiah, as the Jewish people were receiving 14 chapters before this. Now, this is where it starts to get tricky. I wasn't nervous about any of that stuff. It is here that many preachers would probably preach on persistent prayer because this woman just kept asking Jesus and kept begging Jesus Please heal my daughter. You do, do something here. Or persevering faith, like even in the light of being called a dog or even in the light of the world's coming against your faith, persistent and persevering faith. Those elements are absolutely there. Don't, don't pretend I'm saying those aren't there. However, I, I don't believe that that is the most important element here, at least not today, at least not in this culture, at least not in this context. What Jesus is saying here is monumental. It changes the course of his ministry and it definitely changes the course of the apostles' ministry from this point forward. 
The distinction between Jew and Gentile is, is no longer a major theme if you read through Matthew. It's, it's, it's mentioned, but it is not the major theme of Jews and Gentiles. It is just people. So we have to ask ourselves this question as we move further into this. If Jesus was trying to teach the disciples something in this story, and we are Jesus' disciples, then what is he trying to teach us? What is he trying to teach us mainly about his character and who he is? But from there, what does that mean for us? How do we live this out? Who he is is important before we move forward. And he's trying to teach us, this is who I am. And this is how you live out your lives in light of the gospel. And this is where this message will turn as well. This is why I think this message is so timely for not, not just us in this room, but with our potential move to downtown, absolutely, it is, it is timely. But just in our culture, if you look on Facebook, watch the news, which I don't recommend either of those, to be honest with you. But if you do anything on the computer, you're going to hear about these things. And that is why it is so timely and why God sovereignly, divinely chose for this message to be today. See, race and racism are hot-button topics in today's culture. Some of you probably started squirming yesterday when you found out the sermon was going to be about race today. Now that I've said the word race and racism, some of you are probably squirming in your seat a little more even now. And trust me, it's not lost on me that we're, we're pretty Anglo in here, if you know what I'm saying. There's one person in here that has a tan. Everybody else is about see-through as I am, okay? And yet we're still... A little nervous. We're still, is he really going to, is he really going to breach this topic? No one is here that will be offended by the, the things that you could say, and yet we're still a little nervous. The art of civil discourse on controversial issues is lost in our culture. Thank you, internet. Thank you, keyboard heroes who can type whatever they want to say because there's no consequences and nobody knows what you look like and you can say anything you want but then that carries over into our real lives and when someone comes at us with something that we disagree with we don't know how to handle it we either get nervous and run and won't talk about it which is this issue most of the time or we get mad and angry and nothing gets accomplished now before I move on to anything else I want to make something very clear I've already alluded to this I'm preaching to myself today more than I'm preaching to any one of you guys I've been in prayer on my knees. I have wept this week over these things in my own heart. I've been highly convicted. I feel completely unworthy to be standing in front of you to say any of these things. I, I still need repentance today. I didn't solve this problem even in my own heart today or this week. But a week ago, I would have argued with you that I don't have a racist bone in my body. And I've been broken over that this week. I would have argued that I understand this issue a week ago. And I've been broken over that week. God has been moving in my heart tremendously this week. And I pray that the rest of this, along with what I've already said, is just an outpouring of that. And then God can deal with you guys as God sees fit to deal with, with you guys. But if you don't get everything I say today... One thing we have to make clear, I want, 
sounds like I'm teaching elementary, eyes on me. <laughs> Racism is a gospel issue. I don't know if that makes anybody uncomfortable, but it is a gospel issue. This is the character of God that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples in this passage. It is a gospel issue. This is not an open-handed, everyone is free to believe what they want issue. The Bible is clear. This passage is clear. And we can't be afraid to talk about it. And we can't ignore it and hope that it goes away because it's not going to or it already would have. We've tried the ignore it, sweep it under the rug, out of sight, out of mind mentality for long enough. And it's not working. The black eye on American culture from the very beginning of this country has been poor race relations. It has overarched almost everything that has happened from the moment they landed here. And by they, I mean the Puritans or whoever you want to call them, the pilgrims. The treatment of people that we have deemed less than has been a cultural theme in this country for far too long. But many of us, and by many of us I mean me, because I don't know if any of you did this, but we say things like, but we've come a long way, right? We've made so much progress, right? And MLK Day was a couple weeks ago, and sure enough, because my Christian duty called me to do so, I posted an MLK quote. Hadn't read a word of his since until this week. Hadn't listened to a sermon of his since until this week. Barely know what his message was until this week. I just look up for a quote to get likes, to get comments, to make it look like I'm in tune with the culture, to make it look like I'm not a racist because I'm quoting a black man. We have come a long way is the mantra of many people in a culture. And please hear me, I'm not saying anyone in here says this. But that is easy to say when you are part of the dominant culture in America. And let's face it, white people are the dominant culture in America, starting from its beginning, extending till now. And it's really easy to say that we have come a long way when we don't have to wake up every day and ask the question, have we really come a long way? How's today going to go because I'm of this color or this color or this? We don't have to ask those questions as white people. You see, I think it is incumbent upon the church, this church, the global church, Christians worldwide, to take a lead on this. Now, I'm going to speak from an American context because that's where we live. Obviously, if you go somewhere where you become the minority for being white, this, some of these things change. But in America, that, this is not the case. But the church has to take a lead on this. We must, as a family and as individuals, find a way to fight against the sin of racism. It is a cancer that will kill the church if we do not check it, if we do not confront it, if we do not try to understand it and learn from it. We cannot ignore this any longer and we cannot be afraid to talk about it and we cannot be afraid to be uncomfortable when people talk to us about it. We must be willing to discuss it. But I think it is impossible to intelligently or responsibly talk about it unless we take the time to consider and understand our own culture, our own racial heritage as white Americans 
our own sins, our own flaws, whether we know them and see them daily or not. We must confront them and talk about them, but we must do so with a right understanding of the context in which we live. And again, I think this is sovereignly placed here today so that we can talk as a family, bluntly, as white people in a white culture. And some of you are sitting there thinking, he keeps saying white. I hope it's making me uncomfortable. Yeah. Because it's just assumed anymore, isn't it? It's just assumed when you're talking about someone that they are a white person, right? So when you constantly remind yourself that you're saying it over and over again, it gets awkward, and we have to be willing to be awkward when it comes to this issue, or we'll never learn from it. But simply put, we live in a white culture. White has become what sociologists call the normative way. The definition of normative is relating to an ideal standard. That definition of normative is not offensive until you apply it to the fact that white is the ideal standard. Meaning, if everybody was white, it would just be better. Because ideal means best, right? So if everybody was white, this, this world would just function better. In a, or America, I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't say the world. So in regards to this topic, it is the normalization of white cultural practices as being just the way things are. That's what normalization looks like. And while I'm not a fan of buzzwords, and we're not going to belabor this point, but this is where the word white privilege comes from, is we don't have to consider these things. There is no denying that that is true. There is no denying that we live in a white normative culture, and that affords us certain privileges because we are white in a white dominant culture. If you deny that, the rest of this isn't even going to make sense anyway. So you have to understand that. We have to understand that that is the, the country we live in. We hear things like, well, I ain't got no privilege. I had to work hard for what I got. Again, I'm not saying anyone in this room says that. But you hear it. I had to work hard. I didn't have anything given to me. They, which is already divisive, because that implies there's an us, and us versus them doesn't work. They need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get things moving in the right direction. They need to take care of themselves. And what we have to realize as white people is they don't have the same bootstraps as us. The same amount of work for them isn't going to equal the same amount of results as it does for us. And if you deny that, again, I hate to use harsh words. Actually, I don't. Jesus did it. You're ignorant. You're ignorant if you deny that. And I don't mean stupid. I mean you literally are just ignoring the truth. Failing to recognize this causes us many times to scoff at the real complaints that our friends of color have because we say things like, I had to work hard too. White privilege is a myth. We say things like that and then when they complain about real pain and real hurt, we scoff at it and then we miss the chance that God is giving us to be like him and his character and bind up the broken hearted because they are truly broken hearted. They're not making this stuff up. They are hurting they're asking for someone to step into their hurt and step into their pain by allowing us to know what those things are. They are no longer being silent about it. And they're letting us 
in and we are refusing because we scoff at it and try to deny that this is the way that it is. See, we as white people can be ignorant to that many times because we don't live in such a way where we have to notice. I'm going to ask you a question. I really, really want you to consider this. If you have to close your eyes, that's fine. But I really want you to consider this. When was the last time you really considered your skin color? When was the last time you noticed I'm a white person? Because I can tell you when mine was. I was in Haiti, and I was with Todd Hazel. And for some reason, the driver of our car thought it'd be a good idea to drop us off at the block and park the car. Y'all go to that building there. I guess, I guess Todd and I thought we were invisible in the car, even though there was not tinted windows, because as soon as we put our foot on the ground, we were aware we were white. Everyone was looking at us. And you know what I was doing? I was looking around for other white people, just trying to make eye contact to say, you know what, I know what you're going through. You know what I'm going through. This is rough. We'll make it through this together, even though I don't know you and you're 100 yards away. We didn't find any that day. I was looking for them. I don't know what Todd was doing because I was too worried about myself to look. But I'm guessing he was doing roughly the same thing. But it was jarring. For one of the only times in my life, I realized, you know what, I'm not part of the majority here, even close. I wasn't, I'm, I'm lying, I was a little scared. I didn't know what was going to happen. Then the gunshot later did not help that, but that's, beside, that's a different story for a different day. I was searching for something familiar to latch onto. And it wasn't until this week that I considered that that is what our black and brown brothers and sisters go through every single day in this culture. They walk into a room and they realize, I'm not like these people. I'm like that guy and that guy, but these other 150, I'm not like these people. Let me find someone I can latch on to. Let me find a familiar face, aka one that looks like me, because I'm being treated as if I don't look like these people, because I don't. Every day, they have to feel eyes on them because <laughs> I don't want to speak for Todd. I'm guessing this is true. They were looking at us, and we knew it. They weren't even really trying to hide it, to be honest. I know a couple French words, and blanc is one of them, and I know what that means. It means white, and I heard it many times that day. Okay, they, but... They didn't have to care. You know why? Because they were in their context. They were in the majority culture. They didn't have to care what we thought of them, minority. Flip it to America. And that's what our, our friends of color go through every single day. I don't have to think about the fact that I'm white here because it is normative reality. To take it back to this story, we are like the Jews. We didn't have to consider whether or not someone was looking at me as a Jew because I don't have to care. I'm Jewish. I'm up here you're down here. I don't really care what you think about me. And this is the society we live in as white people. We're not made to care because we're part of the majority and we get to define what norm is, what normative is. Let me break it down to you a different way that's a little less controversial. Is anyone besides Brian Lewis in here left-handed? Raise your, raise your hand, either hand. Dang, both of y'all. All right, notice though, still a vast minority here, right? So I'm going to ask, have, you don't have to answer out loud, but just consider, ask these people later if they've had to make any 
uh, what's the word? They had, they had to do things differently because they're left-handed in the world. For instance, if you are right-handed in here, which is, again, the vast majority of us, you have never once had to leave a store and go, did I buy right-handed scissors? These, are these, you didn't have to look at that. Now, left-handed people did, or do, or they learned to use right-handed scissors with their non-dominant hand. What about a mouse? Any of y'all ever had to learn to use a mouse with your non-dominant hand? Nope, because it's always on the right side, right? Left-handed people do. Here's one, and I, if you think about it, you almost guarantee no people that do this. What's this when they write? Why do they have this weird hook? Like, they, I can't even do it. Like, I don't, I, I don't, I can't do it with this hand. That's how they write. Why is that? They don't want to get lead or ink on their hand or chalk or whatever they're writing on. They're trying to avoid the, the this thing, whatever that's called. All right? Why? Because right-handed is the dominant culture. Things are just made for white people, or right-handed people. Same thing, whatever. White, right-handed people, it's all the same. But that is the normative way. The dominant culture, as we have just seen here with four or five of you left-handed, the dominant culture is right-handed, and we don't have to make concessions for being right-handed. Left-handed people do. And that is because it's the normative way. This is where we live in America and culture being white. We must come to understand this fact if we ever, 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 ever wish to understand what our, our black and brown neighbors are going through daily. If we wish to mirror the gospel by loving people the way Jesus loved them, the way his character calls us to love him, if we ever wish to mirror the gospel for under, by understanding them, if we ever wish to mirror the gospel by becoming a multicultural church, we have to get this. Now take everything I just said about left-handed people and now apply that same principle and imagine, just imagine for a second that you're a black person going into the store and you need some Band-Aids and you buy flesh-colored Band-Aids. What color are they going to be? If you're imagining yourself as a black person, they're not going to be the color of your flesh. Go into the store and buy nude colored leggings or shoes or whatever and then imagine yourself, if I'm a black person and I'm nude, do I look like that? The answer is absolutely not. I listened to a sermon this week. I listened to a bunch of sermons this week, some of them twice. And the pastor said this. He's a white pastor that has adopted a, a little girl who is African-American. And he says, if you don't believe that we live in this culture, then go to Barnes & Noble today and try to find a book about a princess where the princess has a C-shaped braid in her hair. He said, if you find one, please send it to me because I've got a little princess at home that would love to read about her. This is the culture we live in. This is where we live today. And as white people, we can literally go our entire lives. And if we so choose, never, ever, ever consider or confront our whiteness. We don't have to. We can isolate ourselves in little bubbles of like-minded and like-colored people, and we don't have to consider it. We don't have to consider how the color of our skin plays a role in the activities in which we participate. Our black and brown brothers do not have that privilege. There's that word again. They don't have that privilege. 
we get the privilege of saying things like, and again, I'm not saying anyone in here says this, we should all just be colorblind and treat everyone the same. First of all, if you say that, just, just don't say that anymore, please. One, it's impossible to do, okay? Two, now that you're aware we live in a white dominant culture, think about what you're really saying there. If everyone would just be white, I could treat them all the same. If everyone would just acquiesce to the dominant culture and be more white, then I wouldn't have to treat them differently. Let's all just be colorblind. Imagine how offensive that is if you're a black person, a Hispanic person, an Asian person, or literally anyone that is an Anglo. That's offensive to them to hear that, especially when they see culture around them not treating them as if they're colorblind. So we're saying things like, let's all be colorblind, then treating them as if their color matters, and it just doesn't add up to them because they have no idea. You're saying this, you're doing this, it doesn't make sense. Therefore, because of that, we need to, Jesus wasn't colorblind. He spoke to this woman because he recognized she was not of Jewish descent. He made that very clear to her. He wasn't colorblind, so we shouldn't be colorblind. Therefore, we must educate ourselves and celebrate the beautiful tapestry of color that God has sovereignly placed in our lives. Be blessed by other races. Learn from other races. They learn from us as well. We can all learn from one another. Derwin Gray says it this way, we are not colorblind, we are color blessed. We are blessed to have people of different races and ethnicities and nationalities and different genders and different socioeconomic statuses and different all of the differences that you can name. We are blessed by that because I can learn from them, they can learn from me, and we can all learn together. But until we admit that this is the case, we're not going to learn anything. As long as we're continuing to deny that white privilege exists or continuing to deny that these are real pains and real hurts from these real people, we're not going to do that. Okay. <laughs> I know you're all asking right now, did he come here today just to make me feel bad about being white? And the answer is absolutely not. Never apologize for being white. Never feel shame or guilt for being white. Doing that is the exact same thing you're doing if you treat someone of color differently. Being ashamed that God sovereignly made you white and sovereignly placed you in a white culture and sovereignly placed you in a white neighborhood and sovereignly placed you in a white family or whatever your context is, your skin color was not an accident. Do not apologize for that. And that is not at all what the, this sermon was about, to make us feel bad that we are white in a white dominant culture. This doesn't mean we all need to move to somewhere that white isn't the dominant culture. It might. If God's calling you there, you need to go. What we have to realize is that even though we do not apologize for it, what does it mean to understand it and live in light of the gospel in it now that we know that this is it, the case? Because the only reason any of this should matter to us is because the gospel tells us that it should. See, Jesus was making a bold statement that day about himself and how to be in relationship with him. He was saying that it is faith, not ethnicity, not race, literally not anything else but that. It is faith that determines their invitation to the banquet table. And this was unheard of at the time. 
You see, Jesus would later send out his disciples to all nations to make disciples. He would send them out to all people so that the promise he made to Abraham would come to fruition to bless all nations from his bloodline hundreds of years before. And this is how it would finally be realized. And this is the kickoff of that on this day. Jesus is teaching his disciples, I'm getting ready here in a few chapters. Probably didn't call them chapters at the time. Here in a little while, I'm going to send you guys out to all the nations and this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. The reason I can firmly say that racism is a gospel issue is one, it clearly mattered to Jesus. Two, to treat people less than or differently because of the color of their skin is, I want you to get this, it is literally and actively, not neutrally, okay? It is literally and actively working against the gospel. It is working against God's plan for his kingdom. You're not riding the fence. You are actively working against, you are an enemy of God's plan, an enemy of God's kingdom work, and an enemy of the gospel. Turn with me really quick. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to finish up. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. Read with me. Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. It says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. I just think that's funny that Jesus, or that Paul's kind of sarcastic there. But anyway, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace. He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. This is salvation. This is the gospel. This is God's purpose in the world. Now, I have a really cool story about the dividing wall of hostility, so you have to come to MCs this week because I don't have time to put it in here, but it's really awesome. But look at what this passage is saying. Not only has he broken down the wall that was specifically built to keep Gentiles away from Jews. That's what that wall was. It wasn't a dividing wall figuratively. It was a real brick and mortar wall that if you were a Gentile, you didn't cross. But his purpose in so breaking down that wall, in so doing, was to create one new humanity, one new ethnicity, one new race. From the two, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, but we can say from the hundreds, one new humanity, one new man in place of the two. Now the word new here is a word we don't see in scripture a ton. It's not a newer version of something. It is brand new. It has never before been seen new. A pastor I listened to this week put it this way. It is not a new 2017 Ford Explorer. It's a Model T. It's never before been seen. It is brand new. A new man, not a new kind of man. 
God is redeeming a people, not peoples. He is creating a new humanity so that we can demonstrate the healing power of the gospel. God is in the business of reconciliation. It is his character to reconcile people. First and foremost, reconciling us to himself because without that, none of this other stuff is going to happen. But first and foremost, reconciling us to himself. But as an extension of that, he is reconciling us to people that we would never ever be reconciled to outside of the redeeming work of Christ and outside of the healing work of the Spirit in our lives. We cannot do that. Any of what I just said. We cannot be in God's work of making one new humanity while we fail to recognize or admit that we live in the culture that we just explained a few moments ago. We have to fight against that. We cannot do that if we are unwilling to be the ones to apologize. Maybe not for anything you've done individually. I know the hearts of the people in this room. I don't think anyone is a blatant racist in here. I don't think anyone even wants that to be the case anywhere in the world. And yet it hides itself so much so sometimes that we fail to recognize it and unchecked it's going to lead to discrimination whether we think so or not but we cannot again be in the flow of God's work of making one new humanity until we are ready to apologize again not for individual actions but just apologize that the culture is this way I'm sorry friend that you have to live in this help me understand what I can do even in a small setting of just my life to help Educate me. Let's, let's educate one another. But we, we cannot do that while we fail to admit that we are part of it, that we are part of that culture. Ask them questions. Ask them to lunch. Ask them to coffee. Ask them into your house. <gasps> May have stepped over the line there, Pastor Jess. We can't ask them in our house. Ask them into your house. What would it look like if Mission Church became the church in Bowling Green known for a bunch of white people eating dinner with a bunch of black people or a bunch of brown people and people looking at us in the restaurant like, what are the, there is no reason whatsoever that those two people should be eating dinner together. And yet, every Tuesday, there they are. Someone's going to finally ask you a question. Hey, what's going on here? There's a language barrier between you two and you can almost not even communicate. Why do you keep doing this, Jesus? the reconciling work of the gospel because he's making one new humanity and we are both a part of that. See, the above-mentioned MLK Jr. that we talked about earlier had another famous quote that I didn't see on anybody's Facebook wall a few weeks ago. And it said, the most segregated hour in America is 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And before you get offended by that, look around the room. This grieves me as one of your pastors. It, it really grieves me just as a person who has been brought to much repentance this week and much conviction in it this week. Because I think, you know what? There aren't people of color much in our gathering. How many have I invited? Myself. I'm not even talking about y'all. Y'all may have invited 100 and they just all said no. I don't know. I'm talking to me here, but it, it grieves me that we can look around the room and prove Martin Luther King Jr. right. This simply cannot be if we want to mirror the gospel. This cannot be if we want to show a lost and dying world the character of Jesus and that he 
is making a new humanity where skin color is not the chief identifier of anyone, but redeemed son and daughter of the Most High God is. That is the chief identifier that all of us need to come to, to identify ourselves. Christian, for me, pastor, husband, father, employee, I, I could keep going on all the things that I do, and down at the very, very bottom needs to be white man. That's hard to do, and it's hard to do when we fail to admit that we are part of the problem. But Jesus is the one who identifies us this way. He is the one that makes that the chief identifier. So really quickly, what do we do now? This is, I'm finishing up. First, three quick applications. First, lean in. Embrace the awkward. Embrace the uncomfortable. Be willing to learn. Ask questions. Be teachable. Embrace, embrace the fact that we don't have all the answers and other people might have answers for us. Be willing to ask those uncomfortable questions and allow people to ask you tough and un uncomfortable questions. Does this mean that you should purposely go out and specifically try to become friends with people of color? Yes. Yes. Not as projects, not as homework assignments, as friends, as brothers in Christ, as sisters in Christ. Not so I can help them. There's that word again, them. Yes. Seek these people out. Ask them questions. They'll tell you. They will gladly answer the, any questions that you have. You just have to be willing to be humble enough to receive those answers and not push back on them and say, that doesn't apply to me. Because I think we've just established that it does apply to us. Secondly, repent. We must, must, must be people of repentance in this area of our lives. Again, I don't think anyone in here is actively, blatantly racist. I do not. But we must repent when you have thoughts that you shouldn't. We must repent when you make snap, snap judgments. Repent when you make double looks at people because it looks weird. Repent when you recognize that you are not living out the gospel in this way. Repent that you have been ignorant of how you may be treating someone differently for any reason. And repent when we fail to recognize that every person on this planet bears the image of God and they should be treated as such. Three, and last, approach Jesus the same way this woman did in Matthew. Look at it again in verse 22. She came crying to Jesus. What was she saying? Have mercy, O Lord. We must beg God for his mercy in this area. You see, no matter how good or bad this sermon may have been today, no matter how uncomfortable we may be when we leave here, no matter how motivated we are to live this out, without the mercy of God, it's not going to happen. God must show us his mercy. Racial reconciliation will never happen outside of Jesus. In Ephesians 2, it says that he himself is our peace. And that all people are brought together into this new humanity by his blood. So may we, like this woman in Matthew, come to Jesus over and over and over again and persistently beg 
Jesus, I am not worthy to even ask you this question, but please show me mercy in this area in my life. Mercy to show mercy ourselves. Mercy to show us how to be agents of racial reconciliation in our context. Mercy to reveal our sin and our ignorance. Mercy to hear our black and brown brothers and sisters and to accept the responsibility of helping them to understand us and them that, and understand their plight and not push back on it but to be agents of that reconciliation when they are hurting. We must come to Jesus over and over again and say, Jesus, have mercy on us for we are sinners. We are dogs. Turn to Jesus. He's the only way any of this is going to matter. He's the only way that any of this is going to take place in our lives he is the only source of peace. He's the only source of reconciliation. May we turn to him individually and as a church today. Pray with me.